Welcome to the podcast M&A War Stories. You're joined by your hosts, Robert Heaton and Toby Tester. Each week, we walk through M&A projects where we've been involved in the course of our careers, unpacking the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our purpose in doing this is to leave you, the listener, with valuable lessons and experiences that you can use in your own M&A projects. So without wasting any more time, let's get this podcast underway. Hey, Toby, how's life in Sydney? Well, Rob, I wonder how life is down in Melbourne, because I think we're both in lockdown this time, aren't we? We we are, and I think we've done that to- topic to death. It is what it is. It, it is what it is. On. Let's not talk you get about used to it. <laughs> now, yeah. there's an interesting topic you brought up this time, which is the Daimler-Chrysler merger, although yeah. it's more of an acquisition, I, I think. This is an interesting one to me for two reasons. One, I lived in Germany for a period of time, and, and yeah. Daimler-Chrysler were actually one of SAP's biggest customers. So I've got an inside view to their culture, if you like, because I think when you look at it at the top level, it was a merger made in heaven to some, Yes, uh, but it clearly wasn't. So why don't you just kick us off with a summary of it? Yeah, Rob, these are classics when it comes to M&A, and this is the subject of business schools and MBAs. I'm sure this has been studied many times, this particular one. It is a bit of a classic, to say the least. Daimler Chrysler merger, how a wedding made in heaven turned into one of the most unsuccessful mergers of all times. <laughs> so, yep. And again, then, it's, got a, it's got a big billion dollar price tag on it it's got big price tags and let, let's let's go through it just give you a bit of color quick yeah. overview this is going back in time now to 1998 so if we cast our minds way back there this yeah. is before 2000. that's actually i was in germany at that time you were in germany i was here yeah. in australia so it was a classic uh, textbook type deal absolute classic it's car industry very mature global need to consolidate consolidation happening across the board, Daimler and Chrysler decided to get together. And it was a unique opportunity to have a single manufacturer. It was to compete against Japanese rivals who were coming up very fast at the time. Yeah, When absolutely. we got our mind back. Yep. And it was a $36 billion deal. And they were anticipating a heck of a lot of synergies out of this one. Eight billion dollars in in anticipated cost synergies yeah now something's just cropped into my mind in this yeah you talked about beating the japanese competition mm. if you think about it japanese were probably more of a competition to chrysler to their jeep and to various other brands than they probably were to mercedes at that time yeah, although Mercedes, of course, they made other vehicles. So it's not just the cars, but you had the vans, you had the trucks and other things That's as well. So, that is you know, true. So, yep. Yeah, so there's there's multiple vehicles that produce. But yes, I, I, I take the point. But anyway, look, $36 billion, $8 billion in, in cost synergies. That was in 1998. And then we just move the uh, time forward nine years later, 2007. Well, it wasn't $36 billion. They, A private equity company bought Chrysler for $7.4 billion, yeah. a fifth of the price paid. Yeah. Chrysler was demerged, and Daimler went back to <laughs> being Daimler. <laughs> yeah. I, by the way, completely off the topic, piece of useless trivia for the next time you're at the pub night, mm. do you know what the Mercedes symbol stands for? So, no, I don't. 
So you know it's a three-pointed star with a, a ring around it? Yes. Around it? Yeah. Well, I only found this out because of, say, Mercedes is one of our customers. The, the, the top point of the star is supposed to be by air, the other mm. one by land, the right. third one by sea, and the ring around the world. Wow. So, so by air, by land, by sea, around the world, Mercedes. I'll have to look at that one. I'll have to look at that. It's funny, you see these symbols and you, you sort of don't yep. really look into it in much detail. Anyway, so look background. Why did how, how do you how does this happen? By the way, like in terms of losing um, so much, what is it? Twenty eight billion dollars over a period of uh, nine years. Let's very quickly a bit of background. Chrysler. Yep. Who doesn't know Chrysler? It was a profitable, very profitable company at the time, although it wasn't a few years earlier. And I remember there was a rather famous businessman called Lee Iacocca. I, uh, yeah, of course. He, uh, he's, in the, he's in the same league as Jack Welch. Yes, he is. And he yeah. famously took, I think it was, he, he only wanted to be paid $1 a year to to basically bring Chrysler from the brink of collapse back in That's 1980. Right. Yeah. And, and he, he did. did. He did. Yeah. And he gained 23% market share. It had about $7.5 billion in cash. And if you remember yep. all the cars they made, Jeep, yep. Grand Cherokees, Dodge. So it was a, a really... An incredible turnaround, great can-do culture, and a capable legion of executives who brought it back from the brink. So it just wasn't just Lee, but there was a whole bunch of them. They were called the dream team. But if you think about it, that's the time frame we were talking about, 98, Mm. 2000 and onwards, when Jeep and Chrysler products started to appear more dominantly in other theatres outside of North America. Mm-hmm. They weren't that prominent before then. Mm-hmm. But I think what Iacocca did was took it onto the took Jeep, particularly Jeep, Dodge, mm. etc., onto the global stage. Anyway, yes. we digress. Uh, we digress. And so, yeah, so the deal, as I said, $36 billion deal. It took place in November 1998, and the business was called Chrysler Daimler ben. Chrysler. That's right, it was. So Daimler-Benz, of course, was headquartered in Stuttgart, just up the road from where I live. Ah, right, okay. Right, and of course, if you look at Mercedes-Benz, they've always been known for high-quality engineering, Mm -hmm. innovation, solidly respected products in the higher echelons Mm. of certainly the car market. But they also compete very well in commercial markets, so vans, trucks, buses, mm. uh, and again, on a global scale. But uh, and that Mercedes image, if you like, flows through all of their products. Yes. Well, anyway, so the deal was, it's only a big deal, $36 billion. Deals yep. made it the fifth largest the, through, this, through this combination. Daimler Chrysler, fifth largest automobile manufacturer at the time, $130 yep. billion business with 442,000 employees. Big. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very big. Yeah. So there we have it. This all kicked off in November 1998. And the question is, well, what happened afterwards? Mm-hmm. Okay. What happened? Okay. Now, well, the, the other thing we might just say is you've got two very strong leaders in this process as, as well. As always are. You had, um, yep. you might pronounce his name better than I do, Jürgen J- Schrempp. J- Jürgen Schrempp. Jürgen Schrempp, the uh, not, not, only, not only can I pronounce his name, I've met him. Oh. Because, as uh, I say, Mercedes-Benz was one of our big customers. So, Platner, who was the chairman of SAP, yeah. would regularly host 
very high-level people. And at one time, we put on an event in Avignon, uh, in, in, in the south of France, and it was a big event held at Palais de Pape, the Pope's Palace in Avignon, and he was one of the CEOs that was there. So, yeah. <laughs> so the other guy, so Jürgen Schreb, Daimler CEO, and the other person, the other key player was Bob Eaton. Um, yeah. He was the Chrysler CEO who took over from Lee Iacocca. Yep. So okay. the, the deal occurred, and as one would expect, a massive integration program began with meetings and uh, seminars. And there was a lot of synergies that they had to gain. Something else I should say, and by the way, you mentioned this just earlier, they say that there was actually a merger. Not just a merger, but it was supposedly, and this is from a public relations perspective, a merger of equals. Well, I think we've got to put that phrase to bed, right? There is no such thing as a merger of equals. No, it doesn't. I, I, I don't Period. Think, I, I don't think people would get away with it these days. I think it was one of those things. That was nice PR statement. Yeah, nice yeah, PR statement. You know. But quite frankly, when you say something like that, it's not true. No. There's always one acquiring another. And in this case, it was Daimler acquiring Chrysler. Yeah, And in a way, if I was going to start saying, well, look, here we are post-deal, you know, where are the first things that are going wrong here? That very statement in itself was wrong. It wasn't yes. a merger of equals. There's not, apart from the fact there's no such thing as a merger of equals, but it actually wasn't one. Daimler was acquiring Chrysler. And I think that people, staff, didn't quite know that. Right. Okay. In actual fact, Bob Eaton, the CEO, and uh, Jorgen Schrempf didn't even really talk that much together. If you're going to start saying where things are going wrong, they did actually, they spoke very infrequently. And I would bet you again mm. that one of them stayed in the US, the other one stayed in Germany. Indeed, indeed. So they didn't really talk much. And Bob Eaton wasn't there for that long either. So this was happening at, at the end of 98. So we're coming to 1999. Scarcely more than a year later, he actually left. And when he did leave, a lot of the major Chrysler executives, who was part of this dream team, who originally brought the whole company around, also left. So a lot of talent went out the door. We know why. <laughs> and then 2001, the company started losing money badly. So its value sort of dropped in half. The $8 billion in synergy savings, well, they started... Wasn't materialised. Wasn't materialising. And in 2003, Chrysler actually cut 26,000 jobs. There was a lot of turbulence going on, and we'll go into that because it's all to do with culture, of course, and integration challenges. And then, as I said right at the beginning, they decided to pull the plug. In 2007, Chrysler was sold to a private equity business, $7.4 billion, and yep. uh, that was it. $28 billion lost in a period of nine years. Now, um, the question is, wh why did this happen? And if we can start picking that apart. Okay. Kick us off. Kick us off. Culture. Why would, why would culture raise its head when you've got a typically Germanic company like Mercedes-Benz trying know. to merge with a typically North American company like Chrysler? I what know, on earth funny. could go wrong there? Indeed, indeed. When you think <laughs> about what Chrysler is, you remember the cars. What is the Plymouth? Yeah, you know, uh, Dodge, Jeep. Yeah, I mean these, you know, yeah, sort of blue collar type vehicles. They're inexpensive. Um, they're they're mid-market. Yeah, they're mid-market mid vehicles. They're also gas guzzlers. So Dodge Ram, for example, was a yeah. favourite in Colorado where I lived for a while. And and these things had monstrous seven and eight liter 
B8 engines, which, dare I say, at the mid-market loved them to death. <laughs> and and the thing is, what do you think of Mercedes? You know, what's what Mercedes? What does well, that represent? Well, I drive one. Mm. I mean, I, I've, I'm sold completely to the Mercedes brand yeah. since 1998, yeah. which was the first one I ever had, and it was a company car with SAP, and since then I've never bought anything else. Because well, I just love the quality and the, you know, feel of it. You can see from a cultural perspective, there's a kind of a snobbery thing going on here. Mercedes, how fancy, high you? quality. How, how dare uh, you? I know, I know. Chrysler, <laughs> blue collar, cheap. How can we sort of like Mercedes in our showroom be having Chrysler cars? In well, our that's the point. That's the thing we were talking about just before these podcasts. It's, yeah. it's not as though there was some sort of crossover. Yeah where in the middle of their respective brands, they were competing for the same market. They weren't. Mm, mm, mm. You know, basically where, where Chrysler stopped at the high end of Chrysler's product range is where Mercedes started. Mm. The other so, thing is, is that they kind of anticipated the cultural issues, language issues, so they did actually spend some money um, and time on, on cultural sensitive workshops. For example, a lot of time effort was spent on sort of having workshops around sexual harassment, German dining etiquette. Uh, I don't know how that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can understand that. And there's probably a few other sort of workshops they did, but they didn't actually do one with the executives. <laughs> there was, a, there was, or, or, or business practice. One of the things that I can, and this from from hard memory, mm. is roundabout. Between 1998 and 2000, sexual harassment in its various forms was a massively hot topic in North America. It was, yeah. Yeah. And every company was having to go through training and workshops and goodness knows what else. But I can also understand from the the German point of view. Uh, Again, a very small, very quick side story. I remember watching an argument in Mercedes-Benz, in their engineering division, Mm. and it was a massive argument taking place because one individual had come into work wearing the wrong coloured jacket. I don't know if it is, but in Germany... The colour of your jacket that you wear notes your profession. Right. Right. So, for example, that if you're a, a technical draftsman, you'd wear blue jacket. If you're an engine engineer, gearbox engineer, red. If you were an auto electrician, that might be a sort of slightly more orangey colour. And it caused absolute chaos in Germany, inside Mercedes-Benz, just because one guy turned up wearing the wrong wrong. Well, jacket. obviously, this is all indicative of the cultural issues, uh, it Rob. Is. And when it comes to culture, you should talk about the governance side of things as well, because Daimler-Benz was a more of a traditional corporation with a hierarchical structure. Chrysler was a lot flatter yes. in terms of the way it yep. worked. And quite frankly, it, the whole decision-making process, between, the whole way decisions were made between the two was complicated. So you had different yep. organizational structure, you had different styles, you had different locations, you had different language. 
By the way, in those professions in Germany, it's not unusual for an engineer to have a PhD. And they would be addressed as Dr. Jürgen or whatever. And again, it's indicative of this rules-based, strong hierarchy German culture that flows not just through society, but through the businesses as well. Now, to compound this a cultural issue, apart from everything else and the way the governance works, there's also an issue around compensation. The uh-huh. Americans actually earn more money than the German counterparts. Uh, yes. For example, the top 10 executives at Daimler-Benz, they received about $11 million, But yep. just the top five alone of Chrysler's earn $16 million. And you've got to remember that Daimler-Benz were producing the fancy, high-end, expensive cars, and Chrysler was producing the cheaper, <laughs> more blue-collar cars, yet they got paid more. You can see the tensions occurring around compensation, around governance, around culture. And, of course, this all compounded the whole integration effort between the two organizations. So it's, it's very unusual for senior managers, etc., in German companies to have stock options. Mm. In US companies, it's the norm. Yes. Right? And performance bonuses are the norm in the US. The principal idea in Germany is you are paid a fixed rate for the job that you do. And if you are an engineer for Mercedes and you go down the road to Heidelberger Drug Machiner, which is the big German printing machine company, mm. you'll know exactly what the salary of their engineers is because that's the scale that everybody works on. Mm. So again, it's hierarchical, rigid versus flexible and rewards-based. Mm. And again, you're going to have big clashes, definitely. So, Rob, we've now got to the point in our discussion. We've talked about the deal. We talked about the key players. We talked about sort of like the cultural issues, the governance issues, compensation issues. We also talked about the staff leaving as we went through and the fact that this was actually became a massive failure, one of the most unsuccessful mergers of all times. But we come to a point where we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the key takeaway? You can point to a lot of things, I admit. I speak like air crash investigations, lots of things. Yeah. But, you now, know. Before, you, before you do that, there's one thing we haven't really covered. Let me just ask you to hmm. cover it off quickly. Hmm. And that is integration. Because, hmm. again, I, I've got experience of the European truck manufacturing hmm. industry. Hmm. And at one time, four of the truck manufacturers got together and they combined their engineering and production capabilities. So, Mm. um, for example, if you've got a production line producing gearboxes, it doesn't matter whether that gearbox is being produced for Volvo, Mm. Scania, Mm. Saviam, or DAF. Mm. Did Chrysler and Daimler try to do any of that integration at the production level? Um, 
I didn't address um, integration in in a detailed sense here because, in a, in a sense, I think the cultural issues compounded. So it doesn't matter how good or bad at the integration, you weren't going to be doing it right because there are some deeper issues underlying this which would not make the integration successful because uh, um, this deal was fundamentally wrong. I think one of the things that you can go back to, uh, the reason why I asked that question is it's actually answered in what you said earlier. Hmm. This is a deal which kicked off in 1998. By 2001, just three years later, the values dropped by half. And by 2003, Hmm. profits are going down the toilet. But nine years later, Cerebus Capital Management has paid $7.4 billion for the group, and the, de- the demerger's taken apart. Mm. So there hasn't been any time to invest in uh, collaboration at the manufacturing level, at the production level. Mm. Mm. Clearly, it looks as though these cultural and compensation and staff issues have been the bane of this it, it is, and it means that no matter what you did on the integration side, you're kind of almost doomed yep. to failure. Fighting um, a dead horse. You yeah. Know, so, yeah, flogging a dead horse. And you know, as I was looking at this, and I was reading a bit more about the deal, there's one thing that sort of like leapt out in front of me, totally leapt out of me, as to yep. why this deal was so wrong. Right. And it's to do with what Chrysler itself had achieved. Under the guidance of Lee Coker and what, what they did was that they actually managed to reduce costs significantly, whereby they reduced the concept to showroom. This is a concept, a car coming concept, actually getting into out of the showroom. They cut that whole time from five years down to two and made it the cheapest yep. manufacturer in the industry. And it was a yep. unique capability that others couldn't compete with. Daimler, for example, could only get a car from concept to showroom in six years. Chrysler was doing it too. And what happened? Daimler went ahead and integrated all Chrysler's resources, the brands, the dealers, the factories, the technology, into its operations. So in its desire to consolidate, it actually destroyed Chrysler's unique competitive advantage. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I can see a group of German people sitting around a table looking at Chrysler's concept showroom performance, and they'll be sitting there going, yeah, it's not possible. to. They cannot be doing this properly. To do this in two years does not make sense. So they must come and do it our way. So I can it, see it. Is, I can is, see is it, it any surprise that cost synergies weren't, weren't achieved? Is it any surprise? No. No, but that's the bit we've been struggling with. And we, we should get to a podcast one day where we – Go back and we pick some of these deals apart because I'm sure there's a theme running through this. Well, there are. There's several themes, and we will get onto this, Rob. Let me get to the punchline on this one because, look, I, oh, there's other issues here like cross-border m and never well understood, culture, we've talked about that, yep. lack of strategic purpose, that, that whole defining strategic purpose of a deal. Why are you doing this deal? It yep. never is really answered here. But it really comes down to this fundamental, and I think it happens every day, Rob, and that is the wrong companies are purchased for the wrong purpose with the wrong measures of valuation, which means that the wrong things get integrated into the wrong operating models. And so the problem is that value in itself rests in what organizations are good at. And you've got to be able to value that. You've got to be able to price it. You've got to treasure it. You've got to nurture it. It comes down to that if it's doing that well, you should have left it alone. 
So if you've got a unique competitive advantage, you've got to leave it alone. That's quite distinct and let it continue on. But that didn't happen. And I think what I was going to say was that it comes back to your point that you've made on several other podcasts mm. that even with a cross-border m and and you've got the cultural and the language and the time yep. difference issues and so on, it really comes down to a lack of understanding the capabilities of yes. each business and then translating that into operational reality. That's right, yes. It's actually been well-researched that deals that link to a capability strategy are going to be more successful than those that don't. So if there's a lesson here to say that whenever you're going to embark on a deal, always take a capabilities perspective. Ask yourself, what deals have you worked on in the past? Anybody. And why did it fail? And you would often find out that it, it was because you perhaps didn't take manage or take value or take proper care of the capabilities in that business you're acquiring. I would agree. Now, you've got key lessons that you've drawn from this. Do you want to walk us through those? Well, there was actually just one key lesson, actual fact. <laughs> the key lesson is that every day, wrong companies are purchased for the wrong purpose, for the wrong measures of valuation, and this results in wrong things being integrated. And that's the lesson yeah. that I would take from this. And we, and this is actually happening now. It is a lesson that every deal maker, everybody who's involved should be aware of that they must take a capabilities view whenever they're looking, whether they're valuing, whether they're actually assessing where the value is and integrating. They always take a capabilities perspective. We should at some time try and unpack this hmm. in, a, in another podcast because – uh, 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 if you go back right to the beginning of this in 1998, hmm. some highly intelligent, extremely well-skilled people hmm. sitting around a board table in Daimler-Benz and Chrysler, hmm. this deal would have had a vision of some sort. The deal's gone ahead. Hmm. Hmm. And, and yes, we sit there and we say wrong companies are being purchased for the wrong reasons with wrong valuations. Mm. I don't know the answer to this, but mm. maybe sometime if there's somebody out there that can offer an insight into that, maybe we ought to have them on as a guest and ask them to give us their opinion. I think the thing is, is that in the thrust of this uh, work, and oh, sometimes you can easily lose sight of the big picture, I think there's that aspect. I think you have to ask the strategic purpose of, of why you're doing that. But when we say purpose, we mean strategy vision and how that translates into real action but also recognizing advantage where does advantage occur in an organization so what parts of business you want to preserve and where you integrate and i think that in this case they didn't do their homework uh, well enough. Otherwise a lot of the the um, issues I think with to do the culture and integration are more symptomatic of that lack of vision, lack of strategy and not understanding fully Tries own unique capabilities. Yeah, well, just, again, off the tangent to a degree, but I remember uh, an old boss of mine talking about a simple lesson of manufacturing, and he said, basically, it comes down to two things. You go for high volume, lower quality, or you go for high quality, lower volume. And it's difficult to merge the two in the middle. Mm, mm, mm. Um, And that's this classic example here. You've got 
mm. Chrysler, which is a, a lower quality product but a higher mm. volume aimed mm. at a mid-market, and Mercedes, which is clearly a very mm. high-quality product, lower mm. volume, aimed at a, a higher market. Anyway, you could well, another perspective is, you see, Rob, with this one, is that they may be, they should have just simply bought, they should take a business model perspective and say, well, look, we're just buying a business model here and we'll keep Chrysler's business model as it is because it works. Absolutely. I mean, that was my thought right at the beginning when, when, when we started talking about this. It's a good idea to acquire Chrysler, mm. but, for, but, but for God's sake, leave it alone. Yeah. Let it do what it's good at. Right, do some collaborative stuff to share some engineering expertise, maybe on building yeah. gearboxes or or yeah. whatever. Yeah, but to try and merge them to the idea where you would walk into a showroom and have a mix of Chrysler and Jeep vehicles on the same show lunacy does not seem yeah. to make sense. Uh, and all. I think that comes down to this whole misguided consolidation mindset. That, yeah, Dame, that Daimler had, and that's what destroyed Chrysler, destroyed yeah. the value of this deal. Yeah. Toby, as always, that's been a great one. Just lay out that key lesson again, because I thought the words that you used was just brilliant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Every day, wrong companies are purchased for the wrong purpose, using the wrong measures for valuation, which results in the wrong things being integrated in the wrong way. Value is in what the organizations do and what they're particularly good at. And if we yeah. take a more of a capabilities view, I think we'll all be better off. I think that's a great point to finish off. Okay. Toby, as always, that's been another great conversation, a great deal that we've unpacked that I'm sure people will enjoy listening to. And we will, of course, be back next week with yet another M&A War Stories podcast. We will, we'll run out on one day, but we'll, we'll go back <laughs> next week and unpack I th I another think one. We've, I think we've done all the classics now, Rob. I think, I, I think we've probably... I think, you we've, know, the, the classic uh, one. Uh, I bet you we can uh, there, find there's one. There's a few more. There's a few more. No, yeah. no, fair enough. But uh, certainly, it's been a pleasure as always. And that just leaves me to say that we will see everybody next week with another podcast. And it's uh, bye from now. Goodbye. Bye.